So we turn to Habakkuk again, uh, the second chapter. Uh, so please open your Bibles and let's read together in this chapter, uh, Habakkuk chapter 2. And once again, I welcome you, welcome those online, and we pray that God will be with us as we meet together before Him. So the book of Habakkuk chapter 2, and reading from verse 1. Habakkuk says, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Yea, also because he transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home, who enlargeth his desire as hell, and is his death, and cannot be satisfied but gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth, upon, heapeth unto him all people. Shall not all these take up a, a parable against him, and a taunting proverb against him, and say, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his! How long? And to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. Shall they not rise up suddenly, that shall bite thee, and awake, that shall vex thee, and thou shalt be for booties unto them? Because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee. Because of men's blood, and for the violence of the, of the land of the city, and of all that dwell therein. Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. Thou hast consulted shame, by, uh, shame to thy house by cutting off many people and has sinned against thy soul. For the stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood, and establisheth a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire, and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity? For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that puttest thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Thou art filled with shame for glory. Drink thou also, and let thy foreskin be uncovered. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory." For the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee, and the spoil of beasts which made them afraid because of man's blood, and for the violence of the land, of the city, and of all that dwell therein. What profiteth the graven image, that the maker thereof hath graven it, the molten image, and a teacher of lies, that the maker of his work trusteth therein, to make dumb idols? Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake, to the dumb stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver. 
and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. And God will bless the reading of His Word to our hearts. Now, in last week's study, I focused your minds on a, on a few basic details or facts with regard to Habakkuk's book and with regard to the prophet himself. We looked at the timing of this prophecy. It is indicated in chapter 1, verse number 6, where the Lord speaks of a coming invasion of Judah by the Chaldeans. Of course, that refers to the Babylonians. And we noted, of course, from other scriptures that that invasion was in three stages, and the first of them took place under Nebuchadnezzar in 605 B.C. That all translates into this conclusion, that the ministry of Habakkuk preceded that invasion. Therefore, he lived and he ministered before 605 B.C. Most likely, as we saw during the reign of Jehoiakim, who was one of the final kings of Judah, an evil man, a foolish man, and who himself was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. So we get some idea of the setting and the timing of the book by that reference in chapter 1, verse number 6, about the invasion of the land, the land of Judah, by the Chaldeans. The second main fact that we noticed last week was based on this description of Habakkuk as Habakkuk the prophet. We see that in two verses in this little book. And that phrase identifies Habakkuk as a prophet. He occupied an authentic office. He was a true prophet in his day. And according to the statements of other scriptures, he was a spirit-filled prophet. We learn that from Peter. He's a spirit-filled prophet. He wrote scripture as he was moved by the Holy Ghost. We can draw in all of that information from verses that relate to the Old Testament prophets as a group, and I showed you that last week. And then in the final place, I notice with you that Habakkuk was not only a prophet, but a prayer warrior. That is underlined, that detail is underlined by the fact that this book is structured around a series of prayers that were offered by Habakkuk. And of course, we have also God's answers to those prayers. And so, in the final part of last week's study, I brought to your attention that there's an outline to this book that is built around Habakkuk's prayers. Chapter 1, 1 to 4, you've got the prophet praying, and then chapter 1, 5 to 11, the Lord answering. Chapter 1, 12 to 17, the prophet praying, and then from chapter 2, from verse 2 right on through to the close of the chapter, we have the Lord answering. And then in chapter 3, we have the prophet praying once again. And so, I know I've gone over that quickly uh, because I, I, I can't take any more time on it, but that's how the book is structured. It's a series of prayers and answers, the prophet praying and the Lord answering. Now, with regard to the first two chapters, what we have in them is really a dialogue between Habakkuk and the Lord. A dialogue is a conversation, an interchange between two persons. And that's how we sum up the interchange between Habakkuk and the Lord in chapters 1 and 2. Habakkuk speaks to the Lord 
He does so in prayer, as we've already noted. He speaks to the Lord in prayer, and then the Lord answers him. And so it is a dialogue. That's what a dialogue is. Um, we're, we understand that. There's nothing essentially wrong with a dialogue. It just depends on who is dialoguing. But on this occasion, it's Habakkuk and the Lord, and one prays and the other answers. So get a hold of that, and that will help you as you read chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so we have this dialogue between Habakkuk and the Lord. Now, in these two chapters, chapters 1 and 2, Habakkuk in prayer brings two questions to the Lord, and the Lord answers each of those questions. And that's how I want to deal with what I have to say to you today. We're going to look at Habakkuk's two questions in these two chapters, and then notice what the Lord actually answered as He brought His questions. So Habakkuk's first question is in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And you can see that it is in the form of a question. Uh, it says in, well, verse 1 is really an introduction, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. He saw something, he had a vision, and he was deeply moved by what he saw. So that's how the book starts. But then here's the first part of his question in chapter 1, verse 1. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? And that goes right on down to verse number 4. So there is Habakkuk's first question. I'm not going to read the whole question with you at this moment. Uh, it's there before you. Now, what's the sense of this first question in chapter 1 here, from verse 2 to verse 4? And really, this first question is posing the query, why does God permit sin? That's how you sum it up. Why does God permit sin? And in posing that question, Habakkuk was concerned about three matters, three issues. Let me point them out to you. First of all, the Lord's apparent long delay in answering Habakkuk's prayer in relation to doing anything against sin. You will see this. Again, if you look at verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Do you notice there that Habakkuk, as he asks the question about why God permits sin, it really brings up this issue of the Lord's delay or apparent delay in answering Habakkuk and, and, and doing anything against sin. How long shall I cry, verse 2, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry unto thee out of violence, and thou wilt not save. Now, remember that this question about God's permission of sin has to do with the sin of his own nation. Later on, he will deal in a question with the sin of Babylon. But here, uh, Habakkuk is asking the Lord about the sin of Judah. And obviously, he had been greatly burdened about that sin, and he had prayed over that sin a lot. That's what his question indicates. And this is one of the things that perplexed him, why there was on the part of the Lord this, I call it this apparent, long delay. There wasn't really any delay, but that's how Habakkuk felt it to be. There, were, there was no answer from God. There was a delay. The heavens were silent, or however you want to put it. Now, that's often found in Scripture. Let me show you two places. Turn to Psalm 13 and verses 1 and 2. Psalm 13. This is one of David's Psalms, obviously, and it is a prayer. And notice what he says, Psalm 13, verse 1, 
How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? Forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? And notice there the repetition of the phrase, how long? You find it there uh, four times in those two verses. And so here is the psalmist David. And here's a man who's praying before the Lord, and it has to do with his enemy and what the enemy's doing against him, and he has prayed about it. And Hab- or David here thinks, that's how we have to put it, he thinks that the Lord has forgotten him. And so he asks the question, well, how long will you forget me? And so on. How long will you hide your face from me? Have you ever prayed like that? Have you, have you ever thought like that? Now, the Lord has forgotten you, and you've kept on praying and praying and praying, and it seems there's no answer. In this case here, it's David's enemy over whom he's praying, and it seems there's no answer from God. So, that reference is very appropriate, very relevant to Habakkuk's prayer. But then turn to the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, and look at chapter 6 and verse 10 and verse 11. Revelation 6 verse number 10. And this is John seeing into heaven, and that comes out when you read uh, verse number 9. It says, I saw under the altar, uh, Revelation 6, 9, I saw under the altar, that's the altar in heaven, the souls of them that were slain for the Word of God and for the testimony which they held. So he sees the martyred saints of the first century, and he listens to what they're doing verse 10, and they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Now, I'm not dealing with this today. Uh, I'm just showing you a reference here from the New Testament that has to do with the same matter of the apparent delay in God answering the cry of His people. In this case, in Revelation 6, we find that it's with reference to heaven, as I've indicated. It's the, uh, the people of God, and they're, they're praying. Uh, in David's case, in Psalm 13, it has to do with earth, the enemy on earth, and the saint of God on earth. But in Revelation 6, it's God's people in heaven. And, and they're speaking to the Lord, and they're asking the question, Lord, how long will it be until you avenge our blood on those who shed that blood. And it's an interesting reference because it tells you a lot about people in heaven. They're conscious. They talk to the Lord. They are aware even of what is happening on earth, that their blood has not yet been avenged. It's a very insightful reference. I haven't any more time to make any comments on it. But the same issue comes up as Habakkuk was raising in his query as he prayed about this matter. Why does God permit sin? And he went on from there to pray, Lord, how long will it be until you deal with sin in my own nation? We could ask that question. The book of Habakkuk, you know, is very relevant to our day and to our land, our nation. How long will the Lord put up with the sin that's so blatantly permit or uh, committed by ungodly people all around us. How long will he put up with it? So that, that comes out of his question here, the apparent delay in God 
in terms of his answer. Then if you go back to Habakkuk chapter 1 again, chapter 2, this matter, the second matter that was troubling Habakkuk as he asked his question, really, why does God permit sin? Not only was it this matter of delay, divine delay, it led to another issue, as verse 3 reveals, why does God permit sin and violence? Look at verse number 3 of chapter 1. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. So in verse 3, here he's focusing, as he asked the main question, why does God permit sin? He's focusing now in verse number 3 on this matter of God not eradicating sin. Why is it still there? Why dost, he says here, why dost thou show me iniquity? Cause me to behold grievance. So it's right, you know how often we put it this way, people put their sin right in your face. And that's happening today. Sodomites, all the rest of them, they come along and they just thrust their sin into the faces of God's people and people in general. And so that's what Habakkuk's praying about here uh, as he comes before the Lord. The query, uh, therefore, really is this. Why does God not just eradicate sin? Why is it always staring me in the face? Why do I have to see it? Why do I have to countenance uh, this sin? Why is it always just rising up as a horrid scene all around me? That's how the man of God is praying. And then the third thing is in verse number 4 here of chapter 1. It says, Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. And so there's a third issue here in verse number 4, and that is the issue of the consequences of the apparent delay of God uh, in in, uh, not answering the prayer of the prophet, and why does he not eradicate sin altogether? And so, here in verse number 4, there are these two consequences of prolonged and unchecked evil. That's what verse 4 is all about. The law slacked, it seems. Judgment never goes forth. And how relevant that is as we think about the nation uh, and the nations of the earth in general and our own little province even. It just seems that the law is not being uh, properly, uh, properly implemented. That's what he's praying about here. And, and all this flows out of that question, why does the Lord allow all this? Why doesn't He answer? Why doesn't He do something? Why doesn't He deal with sin? Why is there no check on it? It's just running on and on and on. And so, in the light of that first question that Habakkuk posed, As I say, this book of Habakkuk is very, very relevant for today. And it's important to underline something at this stage. And that is the distinction between what we call, in studying the Bible, the permissive will of God and the sovereign will of God. Now, there is a distinction between those two aspects of the will of God. I want you to look at Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 for a moment. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, and it says this, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. And so, as you're turning up that verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29, I I draw your attention first to these opening words. 
the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. Now comes the distinction. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And so, there are divine secret matters, matters that are not revealed. That's what the first part of the verse is dealing with. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. There are matters, brethren and sisters, that God does not reveal. They're part of His will. They're part of His, what He has decreed uh, concerning what will come to pass, but He hasn't revealed them to us. And that's His prerogative. We shouldn't question that, that the Lord has matters in His eternal mind that He hasn't revealed to men. But then comes the second part of the verse where there are matters that are revealed to the church family. It says, those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And so there's a principle here. There is what we call the secret uh, sovereign will of God that is not revealed. God has not revealed everything to His people. And then there is revealed what He permits to happen in this world, what He shows us in terms of what He is doing and, uh, and so forth, and what as well as for our lives and so forth. And so, it's a general statement, by the way. It doesn't go into every detail by any means. But I just want you to see this verse because it does have a bearing upon what we're seeing here in Habakkuk. This principle of the distinction between God's permissive will and God's secret will is raised by Habakkuk's first question and the consequences of that question. In the will of God, He permits sin, violence, whatever you care to mention. Now, He's not the author of it, because it arises out of the heart of man. All sin does. But you see, if God is not sovereign, then things are out of control. But the point is, God is sovereign. And so, how do you analyze this? When you look at violence and bloodshed and all kinds of wickedness being perpetrated all around us and, and, and on and on we could go here. How do, how do you analyze that? Why is it there? Why has it not been eradicated? Why is God not answered? Because God in His will permits it. That's the answer that is given by the Scriptures to us. But that does not mean, you see, that He's not in sovereign control. You see, that's where people will go with this. Look at all that's happening. That means that God doesn't care. That means that God is not in control. He's just left us, and, and on and on they run with their human uh, reasoning, which, of course, is fallible, comes out of a darkened mind that's bound to be wrong. We've got to understand this. The matter is that He does not show us all that He is sovereignly... Uh, doing simultaneous with what He permits to happen, which we do see in terms of evil people and their actions. There are things that God is doing that you do not see, I do not see, that men in general do not see. We've got to keep that in mind. You might wonder what they are, but the point is they're secret. The Lord's always at work, exercising His sovereign will. 
What we see is what He has permitted us to see and to view in the world all around us. And so I draw this in because Habakkuk's first question does raise all these issues. And then you have God's answer to this. And that's found in verses 5 to 11 of Habakkuk chapter 1. God's answer to Habakkuk's first question here is God's first answer. And there are several points that are raised in the answer that God gives. In verse, I only can run through them and mention them here. In verse number 5, the first thing that God shows Habakkuk is that judgment will soon be visited. It says in verse 5 of chapter 1, this is God speaking now, you see. And what I've said, this is a dialogue. Habakkuk asks his question. Then God answers him in verse 5 on through to verse 11. And God says here, Behold ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which ye will not believe, though it be told you. And what God is saying there is, as I've just said, and the verse makes it clear, that judgment will be administered. Because he has asked that question in verse 4. That's part of uh, Habakkuk's question uh, the end of verse 4, Therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. This is all wrong, Lord. There's nothing right about what's going on. The Lord says, listen, Habakkuk, you just watch, because judgment will be visited. The second part of the answer is in verse 6, and that is God is telling Habakkuk in verse 6 that the instrument of judgment on Judah will be the Babylonians. So, verse 6. Remember, Habakkuk's first question has to do with the sin of his own nation and why God has not dealt with it. So, God tells him, it will be dealt with very soon. Judgment is coming quickly, Habakkuk, and it's going to come through the Babylonians. We saw verse 6 last week. I'm not reading it again, but that's what it's all about. And the third part of God's answer is from verse 7 to verse 10. And that is, He shows Habakkuk that the Chaldeans or the Babylonians' power will be invincible, and it will be irreversible at the time when it falls. It says in verse 7, they are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. And it goes on to talk about their horses and, and, and their horsemen and, and so on. This is all about Babylon coming to judge Judah. And so, it's a, a description of the mighty power of God's instrument of judgment on the nation of Judah, on His own people. And this is all about the captivity, when they're carried away to Babylon for 70 years. That's what God's describing here. And He says, it's definitely going to happen, Habakkuk. And so, I will judge the sin of, of your people. The fourth part is that other nations would also fall and be overthrown by the Babylonians. Look at verse 10. And they, that is the Babylonians, shall scoff at the kings, and the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. And so, what you find there is a reference to other kings and other princes, a reference, therefore, to other nations. And that's exactly what happened when Babylon came in those days. It just wasn't Judah that was destroyed. It was other nations surrounding. So, God makes it clear in His answer that this, uh, this general judgment is coming upon the nations 
not only, not only Judah, but other nations as well. And the fifth part of the answer is in verse 11, and here's what it says. We'll read it first. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this his power unto his God. And what you're reading there is that when the Chaldeans would carry out their overthrow of Judah and other nations, they were going to commit the folly of attributing their success to their own God. And that was their folly. You see, it was the true God who was going to bring Babylon or the Chaldeans and have them as His instrument to bring His judgment on Judah and other nations. But the Babylonians committed the folly of saying, our God has brought this about. And of course, Babylon had many gods, but there were some chief gods, and one of them I mentioned, I think, last week, Nebo. If you take the name Nebuchadnezzar, he's named after Nebo. And then there's another god called Bel, B-E-L. And from that you get the name Belshazzar. They named their kings and their emperors after their gods because they thought their gods were almighty and invincible. And, and so they're attributing uh, what they're going to do to Judah and other nations. At this time, they're attributing all this to their God. So there's God's answer from verse 5 through to verse 11. His answer to Habakkuk's first question. Then Habakkuk's second question. It starts in verse 12 of chapter 1, and it runs through to chapter 2 and verse number 1. And I haven't time to read all the verses, but let me just say this at this stage. The prophet's second question is essentially this. How can a holy God use a sinful nation like Babylon to accomplish His purposes? That's it. If you look at verse 12, it says, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? We shall not die. There's a little hope in there in Habakkuk's mind. We shall not die. But read on, O Lord, thou hast ordained them, that is, the Babylonians, for judgment. And, O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, canst not look in iniquity. Now, you often hear those words quoted in prayer. And that's fine. But in this their own context, what do they mean? Thy art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. That part of Habakkuk's second question sets the tone of this question. The words behold in verse 13 and lookest, they actually mean to look upon with favor. To look upon with favor. And so often we quote these words by saying, Lord, you can't look and sin. But what the words essentially mean is, uh, as we understand them, and this is, the, this is the correct understanding, Lord, how can you look with favor on the Babylonians? And the reason why he asks that question is, as you read on in verse 13, toward the end of the verse, it says, Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue, but listen carefully, when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he, 
And there you've got the very heart of the second question. How can a holy God use a sinful nation like Babylon to accomplish His purpose when the Chaldeans or the Babylonians are more wicked than the people against whom they are sent, including Judah? And my dear friend, again, how up-to-date that is. Because we look at things that happen across the face of the earth, and, and even people in general do this. And I've often said this, people who, can, who will likely say there is no God, and then something happens and they say, if there is a God, why did this happen? It may be uh, an incident, this happens all the time, where some wretch, some evil, corrupt individual or group of men carry out some awful catastrophe and they maybe murder people left, right, and center. It goes on all the time, doesn't it? And we've just read this week or heard this week about the release of the man who was, who's described that Russian as, uh, the, I forget the exact words, the purveyor of death or whatever it is. He was released. And the idea is in America, well, how, how could that man have been released? He's such a wicked man. Look at what he does. And he's much more wicked uh, in the eyes of men than therefore deserves to be his, his release. But what I'm saying is this is how people think, and very often Christians think this way. And Habakkuk was thinking this way because he actually puts it to the Lord. Lord, how can you, a holy God, actually use a nation like the Chaldeans who are more wicked than my people? And so that is a striking question. Habakkuk judges God's instrument of wrath to be more sinful than those who are being judged, namely the people of Judah. And the perplexity in this man's mind, Habakkuk's mind, he expresses in all those questions that run from verse 12 through to verse 17. And you can read those verses, and you'll find four or five questions that are, demon, that are designed from Habakkuk's perspective to illustrate and to demonstrate why he feels this way. How can a holy God use a sinful nation like the Babylonians? Well, what's God's answer? Well, you come to chapter 2, and Habakkuk says in chapter 2, verse 1, I will stand upon my watch. You see, the prophet was a watchman. He was on a watchtower. Uh, there was a, an actual thing called a watchtower. And a man who was maybe watching out for uh, people in his village or town would get up into the watchtower and stay there all night and keep an eye on things. That's the imagery that's here. But in Habakkuk's case, he's not in a physical watchtower. He's a prophet and therefore he's a watchman in the spiritual sense. So that's what verse 1 is saying. He says, I will stand upon my watch, set me upon the tower, and will watch to see what he will say unto me, and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And so notice this. Habakkuk's expecting the Lord to answer. He answered the first time to his first question in chapter 1, as we have seen it, and Habakkuk is now expecting the Lord to answer again. And it starts in verse 2, And the Lord answered me. Let me tell you, my dear friend, it's a solemn thing to pray because God hears us. We need to be very careful what we pray, how we pray. 
And that's a subject all on its own, how we actually address God, because the Lord listens. And so, there's this interlude in verse 1, the prophets saying, I'm going to listen here because the Lord's going to answer me. And then verses 2 and 3, you find these words, write the vision. Verse 2, verse 3, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. The point is that what God was going to show Habakkuk here would be in the form of a vision. And it was going to be an infallible revelation of certain judgment upon the Babylonians. So look at verse 3. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. What is meant there is not only the vision itself in which Habakkuk will be shown all these things about the judgment God was going to mete out on the Babylonians, but also the actual judgment itself is saying to the, to the prophet here, Habakkuk, it's not going to happen immediately, but it will happen. And you've got to wait. You've got to watch. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. That's how you understand the first few verses. And verse 4 is intensely important. Behold his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. There's a little rebuke there to Habakkuk. If your soul's lifted up, that means there's pride in your heart. And Habakkuk, you see, when he asked his questions, he was questioning his God. And that always comes out of a heart of pride. And the Lord has to chide him, Habakkuk, your soul's lifted up. Therefore, in that instance, it's not in a good state. Be very careful, my brother or sister, about the state of your heart. In difficult times and wicked days, be careful lest pride enters in and you come and you start to question what God's doing as if God has done something wrong. That's put in plain terms. But look at the end of verse 4. But the just shall live by his faith. Now, I mentioned those words in closing last week, and I told you, as I'm sure most of you know anyway, or did know anyway, those words are quoted three times in the New Testament. Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.13, and then in Hebrews chapter 10. In two of the references in the New Testament, I don't want to spend much time on this for times running out here, in two of the references in the New Testament, they are used not in the way in which they're found here. They're used by Paul as he defends or explains and defends the doctrine of justification. The just shall live by faith. But in the Hebrews reference, they're used as they're used here. And what these verses, what these words mean in chapter 2, verse 4, the just shall live by his faith, is this. In this setting, this is what they mean. Habakkuk, you are a man of faith. You're a believer. You're a child of mine. And Habakkuk, you have, the only way you can deal with this situation is by living by faith in your God. And that's how they're using Hebrews 10. That's their precise meaning in their own context. And I just point that out. That's very important. 
The reason why we question God so often, the reason why we query God or maybe even blame God, because we can be guilty of that, is because we're not living by faith. We don't see things as we think we should see them. We're not getting the answers as we believe God should be giving those answers. And we start to question God. And once that happens, we are not living by faith. Because remember what I told you earlier, there are things that God does not reveal to us. And in that instance, you and I have got to live by faith and make our way through the difficulty and come out the other end, as it were, as we live by faith and the Lord will undertake for us. That's what the end of verse 4 is all about. So, this is part of God's answer, you see. And then from verse 5 right through to verse number 20, and there's an awful lot in those verses, what you find here is that God simply, but I, when I say simply, I don't mean it was some trite thing. It was, it was clear, in other words. God clearly reveals that Babylon would be judged and sin would finally be destroyed. Verse 5, it says, Yea, also because he transgresseth by wine. Notice this. Did you notice when we read these verses, a number of times there's a reference to drunkenness. Wine, giving your neighbor a drink, etc. That was the custom of the Babylonians. They were a drunken people. Do you remember Belshazzar in Daniel 5, uh, the night that Babylon actually fell, and the man was as drunk as could be. And then he saw the fingers of a man's hand writing on the wall. And he soon sobered up, I can tell you. But the Babylonians were notorious for their drunkenness. And because they were a drunken people, given over to, to their drink and so on, they, they believed they were invincible. You know, when a, drunk, when a man's drunk, he has no wit. He thinks he can do anything. He thinks he's infallible. He struts about or he rolls about or whatever way he gets about and he believes that he can do just anything. So the old saying is, when the drink's in, the wit's out. That's plain language and that's true for the Babylonians. And that's what verse 5 actually focuses on. Yea, also because he, is tra he transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man. Neither keepeth at home who enlargeth his desire as hell, and is as death. Here is, here's the Babylonian, and he's described with a desire like the desire of hell and the desire of death. What kind of a desire has hell or death? A desire that's insatiable. They're never happy. Hell's never full. Once more and more inhabitants. Death is greedy. And God takes that kind of language and He applies it to the Chaldeans as they carried out their deeds in those days. Their agenda was driven by a greed, like the greed of hell and of death. And then right down from verse 6 to verse to the end of the chapter, the Lord proceeds to pronounce five woes against the Chaldean. Verse 6, it says, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. Verse 9, Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness. Verse 15, 
Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink. There it is again. And verse 19, Woe unto him that saith to the wood, that's his God, you see, awake to the dumb stone, arise, it shall teach. Five woes down through these verses. In other words, God is showing Habakkuk, yes, the Babylonians are coming, and I will use them, but I will then judge them when I have finished with them. You know, my dear friend, that's the way of history. Wicked nations, wicked people raised up or coming along, nations gathering, and they do awful things. And, of course, we think of this one and that one, Hitler and Mussolini and all the rest of them, and they come along, the IRA, and they do what they do, and they think they're going to get away with it, but God says they won't. Their judgment will come, and they will be destroyed in His own time. God says to them, Woe, 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 woe. And then verse 20 is a wonderful verse. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. That's some verse. Where's God? He's in His holy temple. Man needs to shut up and stop his foolish talking because God is in His holy temple. Therefore, let saint and sinner both remain silent. Don't question God. God knows what He's doing. God's in charge. If you're not saved, that's awful. You can't get away with your sin. It's going to catch up with you. God will deal with you, as He will deal with whoever. And therefore, let every one of us search our hearts and come before the Lord and say that the Lord is in His holy temple. Lord, teach me to keep my tongue, my lips, and be silent before Thee. May the Lord bless His Word to us. We'll have to come back another time to Habakkuk, because chapter 3 needs some attention. So, let's just bow for a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come to Thee in the Savior's name. We thank Thee for Thy Word, for its marvelous truth that, has, that lies before us. And, O oh Lord, help us to understand it and draw from it, and, and help us, O oh God, to rejoice in it and Bless us this day. Bless us in these times. May we not question Thee, Lord, but may we live by our faith. May we walk with God. May we follow Thee whithersoever Thou goest. Lord, hear prayer and bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name and for His sake and for His eternal glory. Amen.